morning. Uh, good morning to you in Wilmington as well. Uh, I want to welcome you this morning. We are in a series on a, uh, we're finishing up a series about this concept of consecration, and I want to start with um, an example from from the service that I experienced growing up. The military has a, a thing it calls the code of conduct. It's a fairly short six articles. They're memorizable. This code of conduct. Uh, and it was developed to help a soldier remain strong if interned in a prisoner of war camp. What we discovered in the 50s after the Korean War was that we had not prepared soldiers for a way of thinking in uh, what turned out to be a much harsher environment, an ideologically harsh environment of being a prisoner of war in North Korea uh, sort of the communist way of torture seemed sought to separate the soldier from their Americanism. And in the 50s after the Korean War, 21 U.S. soldiers chose to remain permanently in communist China, and that was a shock uh, to us. And we realized that we really had not offered ways of thinking for a soldier in that environment. And and the enemy had used that against them. And so uh, the Code of Conduct came out. And it's, like I said, it's six fairly short articles. This is the last article, Article 6. It says this, I will never forget that I am an American fighting for freedom, responsible for my actions, and dedicated to the principles which, to make my country free, I will trust in my God and in the United States of America. It ends in a large part the, the, like the way it begins but it has in it this sense of, I will never forget that I am an American. And that's the spirit of the code of conduct. Is in these very difficult times, it's there to help uh, the soldier not lose themselves, not lose their way. And it ends with this idea, I will never forget that I am an American. I'll give you a, a different example from a different track of life. I have a, a, a friend, a colleague of mine. He's older than me uh, by several years. And he immigrated from Austria. So I like to listen to him talk. And he and I were visiting a few weeks back, maybe a month or so ago. In some way or another, our conversation meandered onto the subject of marriage and he said this to me, and I want to I want to practice this accent, but I won't. But I'm, I'm hearing it in my head. He said when he got married, about two or three years into marriage, he was miserable. And he went to his wife and he said, "Listen, you're not happy. I'm not happy. This isn't good. Nobody's happy. Let's just get a divorce. Let's just divorce." And he said, his wife said to him, we can't get a divorce. We're married. And he just broke out into laughter. And he said, can you believe that's what she said? She just said, we can't divorce. We're married. So we didn't. 
Like 40 years later, they're still married. That was the argument. That was the argument that saved them. Was the wife remembering who they were. There's sometimes in hardship that the saving thought is for you to remember who you are. When everything's coming against you, tempting you out of who you are, tempting you away, accusing you, doing these things, there's times in life that we are called simply to remember who we are. And that is wrapped in this idea of consecration. Consecration is a big word for uh, living life towards God, devoting our lives towards the Lord and sort of walking walking each step in life uh, in light of Christ. And in the first week that we talked about it, we brought up the idea that Jesus Christ is the high consecrating ceremony of the Christian. That in the Old Testament and in the Jewish faith, there were many high rituals, sort of sacraments that mattered. They were external and physical acts of consecration that took place in the Jewish faith leading up to Christ. But when Christ came, he took those rituals and consumed them. He became those things. So in the Old Testament, we see the ritual of circumcisions. 2,000 years of ritualistic separation, meaningful. This is what it means that we're a people, is that all the firstborn on the eighth day are cut and separated. That meaningful act for 2,000 years set them apart. Christ comes And you find Paul writing things like, God calls you to be circumcised, not by the hands of men, but through the the Holy Spirit. The temple of God. The identifying feature of the Hebrew faith. After Christ, the apostles have no problem saying to you, you are a stone in that temple. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone upon which we're built. The priesthood. The way by which man is mediated to God is brought into Christ. We just sang that. We just just sang that in a hymn. Sacrifice. The way by which blood is shed so that we can be at peace with God. That's Jesus Christ. All of these things, all the things that they did have been taken by Christ and fulfilled. And in truth, all that's left, all that's left are too, too small rituals. That's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism, it's an act of consecration looking forward to your life in Christ. And Lord's Supper is an act of consecration remembering back upon your life in Christ. It's quite interesting. Baptism, you do once, right? It's sort of at the commissioning. By faith, you've become God's. 
you're his, and baptism sort of marks that. This, I am now, I now belong to the Lord, and I'm, I'm, I live beneath the righteousness of Christ. That's done once. The recollecting of the Lord's Supper is done often. We continually remember and look back to what the Lord has done. Because there are times in life where the most important thing you need to do is remember who you are. So the Lord says, do this in remembrance of me. Down the road, whether it's years later or months later, seasons later in your life, it's not, we should not consider it improbable that we may find ourselves in circumstances or difficulties or trials where you think, I never thought I would be here. I didn't think, how is it that I got here? And it's in times like that that God will call you to remember back to what he's done for you. Or there'll be times in your life, years down the road, where you may drift in your faith and just move from the, the zeal you once had to sort of dry, arid faith. And you'll, you'll wake up one day and be, how is it that I got here? And it's in time like that that the Lord will call you to remember. And it's, that's what I want to spend time on, is, is what is the power of remembering? What is the purpose, purpose in it? And I want to do three passages this morning. So we'll look at three scriptures. Most of, They're going to all be available on the screen. And in fact, I'd rather you not turn for the first one. Not that, I don't, not that I'm scared of what you're going to read. Uh, I, will, I, will do my, I am doing my faith being as faithful as I can to be consistent with the context of the word, but mostly just because I want to I keep us narrowed in on one narrow, small thought. And here's the thought. This is the passage. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is verse 11. Now, leading up to this verse, verses 9 and 10, Paul says something like this. Now, you know, all these sorts of people are not going to inherit the kingdom. And he gives this list of death-filled behavior. It's a list of livelihoods that are doomed, that have no life in them. And it's not an unfamiliar list. It's the sorts of things that even in our day and time that we might be drawn to as a a poor substitute for life in Christ, tempted away from God towards because of what they seem to promise. And it's this list, he says, there really is no hope in in these livelihoods. And then he enters into this verse here. And he says, and such were some of you. So he gives this long list of behaviors that have no hope, no life in them. And he says, and some of you, just as he could say to this room, right? Some of us were party to some of those livelihoods. Then it's interesting what he says because he follows it up with how it happened. And what I want us to know what he doesn't say. He does not say, such were some of you, but... You're better than that. You rose above it. You matured. 
you took the necessary steps of the process towards sanctification to step-by-step climb out of the situation. You were like this. Some of you were like this, but you've learned how to manage the symptoms. That through good cognitive adjustments, you figured out how to navigate life. He does not say any of that. In fact, he says something very, very different than that. He, he, he begins to talk about something that happened to us. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Paul reminds you your freedom was found not in what you did, but in what was done for you. Your freedom to do anything right in God has come through what God has done for you. Now, Paul is saying this in a larger argument. He's trying to coach or walk the church in Corinth back towards faithful living, back towards godliness. The path, he's trying to take a church that's sort of going off the rails and move them towards godly living. And his way of doing this is to remind them of what happened to them. He says, you were washed. In other words, you were cleansed of your sin. You were cleaned up. Jesus died for your sin. He shed blood for your sin. and You have been cleaned. And then he says, you were sanctified. That's the consecrating image there. You've been set apart. You've been devoted to God. So you were cleaned up. You were purified. And then you were subsequently given over to God. You now belong to God. You're purposed for God. And he says, lastly, and you were justified. And you have been fully accepted. God fully accepts you for who you are. Those are three really important concepts. In Christ, you've been cleaned, you've been purposed for him, and you've been fully accepted. That thought, Paul is building on that thought in order to, that the church might produce godly living. I want to show it to you again. This passage is from Ephesians chapter 2. By the way, these are all over the New Testament, so I'm only picking three. But this one's from Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll just walk verse by verse down it. This is going to be 11 through 14. Here's the context here in Ephesians. Paul is dealing with the reality that there was a group of people who understood themselves as God's people, Israel, or the Jewish, Jewish people, And they understood themselves as God's people because of the perimeter of ritual that had identified them as God's people. That God instituted, by the way. So it's not like they invented these things. God had given these things, looking forward to Christ, and they had begun, in fact, to place their identity in the ritual. And so they were God's people, and outside of that perimeter of ritual was everyone else, the not God's people, or the Gentiles. And he's 
working with the church. He's actually, in this letter too, is on his way towards godly living, on his way towards unity within the fellowship. That's the subject here. And he's going to be talking to the outsiders and, by extension, the insiders about what has been done for them. And what I want you to have an ear for is the way the argument towards godliness is predicated on them remembering what has happened to them. Okay? Let's look at verse 11. Let me find it. I'm on the wrong page. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. So he's talking to the outsiders. Remember, you outsiders, you once lived in the flesh. And you knew you were outsiders because the insiders, you didn't have what the insiders had, right? You were uncircumcised and they were circumcised. Now Paul points out they were circumcised in the flesh. So the whole thing is sort of a, an insufficient argument. But he's saying, I want you to remember that you were once outside, outside of God. This is what 12 says. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So remember, outsiders, you who once knew very well that you were outside the wall because you were not circumcised in the flesh, you were uncircumcised, I want you to know at that time you were without hope. He says you were without the Savior, you were not the people of God, you were strangers to the promises that God had given through his covenant, you had no hope and you had no God. That was you. He wants you to remember that. And then he says this in 13 and 14, and and I'll just read them together. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Do you hear our passivity in the hope? Our hope is built on what he has done. And in fact, the recollection of what Jesus has done for us is what Paul is using to spur the church towards godly living. In order for us to be godly, Paul's not saying In order to be godly, you need to say nice things. You need to not say bad things. You need to put that away and do that and do that and that. I mean, now there there are identifying attributes that the Bible gives us of what godly living looks like. I, I don't deny that at all. We want to know what godly living looks like. But nonetheless, the basic argument towards godliness that's given us here is not do this and you'll be godly and do that and you'll be godly and do that and you'll be godly but rather recollect what Jesus has done for you. Think about it. Don't just pass on by it. 
Don't look at the cross of Jesus Christ as the gateway, the thing you walk through in order to be a Christian, and that you move on from the cross towards godly living, but rather that you never, ever, ever leave the recollection of the cross as your chief meditation. And that is what produces godliness. It may sound... Uh, I am going to say to you what my mind said to me, which is, this doesn't sound practical. Like, if I want to live godly, I need to know what to do. Um, not really. Eventually. If you aspire towards godliness, you must, you must have a deep recollection of what Jesus has done for you. That's the first floor. That's the foundation. That, upon that, everything is built. You have a problem, you want it fixed, you want to fix that thing, this, and you know it's not right, and it's not as God would want it, and you, want it and, and you want to know, what do I need to do, and how do I fix this, and all of this. And you have this big heart to go fix the whole world for the Lord, but you're not that interested in Jesus Christ and the cross? Hopeless. You will do everything good the wrong way. You are without hope. Our hope comes from a deep, deep mindfulness of what Jesus has done. It, again, I'm only saying to you what my own quandary, which is that doesn't sound practical. It is, it is what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach you wake up, and in your life you remember who you are in Jesus. And that, that is what enables you towards freedom. The knowledge that you have been washed and that, God, you're devoted towards the Lord and you're acceptable to God. And that this was done through the work of Jesus Christ, that he paid this penalty for you so that when you feel, and whatever it is, whether it's your work or your marriage, your relationships or whatever, you feel this big wave of injustice coming upon you. You're getting what you don't deserve and people don't understand you or whatever it is. When, if, if you just want to fix that, that's fine. Good luck with that. Jesus would say, sit, sit in the reality that I bore a mountain of injustice for you. I never have once demanded justice. I preach mercy. I am long-suffering in my nature. And it's through my long-suffering, graceful, merciful nature that you have life. That does something. If you sit in that. Our path to godliness is remembrance. I'll show you one more passage. This is 1 Timothy 3. 
I'll just give you the first line of, this is verse 16. Here's just the first line. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. You want to take a guess what the mystery of godliness is? You think it's, your, the church of the 1980s in America would say, you need, a, you need a quiet time every morning. That's the mystery of godliness. Quiet time, daily bread. You read your guideposts? Right? Do you watch Hallmark Channel enough? You need good, positive chicken soup for the soul thinking. That's the mystery of godliness. You need to be in a Bible study. You need to be connected. You need to be in some J group or fire group or L group. You need to have, you need to have an accountability partner with double, double filter. You need, to have, you need to be in on that, and you need to be stepping up. You need to go from first base to second base in your discipleship process. You need to be all, that, is that the mystery of godliness? Is that what you think the mystery of godliness is? This is the mystery of godliness. You ready for it? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, either this is entirely impractical, because it feels that way, doesn't it? Or we don't have the mystery. My hunch is we're so about our own lives and wanting to fix and mediate the things that are in our way that we are not, we're not attracted enough to sting around the pole of the cross of Christ as his blood is coming off his feet, sitting in the dust of that, allowing the truth of who he is to examine us. Allow what he's done for us to say, in light of what I've done for you, now I can say all sorts of things about you and call up and out of you the shame that's suffocating you. For us, it doesn't seem to be enough to know that we're washed and we're devoted and we're accepted by God. We, oh, I need to know, how, how, how do I do this? You do it by believing that you're washed and you're devoted and you're acceptable to God. We want eight steps and healthy habits and mindfulness. We want to procedurally navigate the problems. God wants you to be free of your shame. The more experienced I am with sin, and I gain experience every day, the more I am convinced that my whole problem is shame. The greater the wisdom is of Genesis chapter 3 when the first signs of the consequence of their sin is shame. That I fail because I'm reaching for identity beneath a cloak of shame. And the more, I, the more I believe that is the problem, the more prone I am to believe that the cure comes from me knowing that I have been washed and I have been given to God and he accepts me. I'm wholly acceptable to the Lord and I'm wholly purposed for God.
there's times when life gets hard enough, you need to remember who you are. We have been washed. We've been given to the Lord. And he has accepted you. Here are some ways to think about this. Just very practically, maybe not very practically, this feels, this mystery of godliness, I confess, my knee-jerk is dissatisfaction. Because my initial response is that's a fact. I know that's a fact. I believe he was manifest in the flesh. I think the Lord would say, no, but you need to stay there. Why would I send my only son? Meditate on that. Stay, stay in it. Here's some examples. In hardship, it's just for you to ask yourself, do you tend to perceive life's struggles as a sort of a great burdensome evil that comes upon you when hardship comes? Does it weigh, does it weigh heavy on your shoulders? Like, why is this happening to me? Woe is me, uh, you know. Do you find yourself viewing life from the perspective of a victim frequently? Or do you remember the many hardships that Christ endured for you? Or do you recall that nowhere has Jesus ever said, hey, it's going to be really easy? Or that Jesus once actually said, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and take up my cross, your cross and follow me. That I have a cross to bear for your life. Now you're devoted and you have a cross to bear for me. Or do you sit in the notion that the hardships in this life are nothing compared to what I will receive now that I am acceptable to God? Here's another way of thinking about it. In your pursuits in life, in your ambition, in your drive, in the hard way, do you find that you lean forward in life to achieve and accomplish things because you're sort of meticulously building uh, an image or an identity of yourself that matters? If I accomplish these things, I'm, that, that's a worthy person. That's what a worthy person looks like. Is that, is that you? Or do you... Stand in the midst of the fact that you are acceptable to God already. He's not waiting for you to do something. Anything that you do in the Lord, you're doing inside of his acceptance. When problems arise, do you look for fixes all the time? Things aren't working out the way. You got to fix this. You got to fix that. You know, Mr. Fix it. Gimme, gimme. Always. When are your prayers to the Lord always that the Lord might fix something for you? Lord, can you fix that? Can you fix him? Can you fix her? Can you give me that? Is, is Jesus Christ just one big rectangular vending machine for your prayer life? Where you're always going to him to fix some problem because if your life was just easy, then things would be right. Is that you? Or. In the midst of hardship, are you clinging to the Lord, mindful 
that he never needed to squirm out of the hardness. But rather, because he was pure and wholly devoted to the Lord and accepted by God, he was at peace. Did your prayer life, is it, is it like a vending machine or is it more this, God, I see, Lord, I see in you a long-suffering. May I be more like you. Make me long-suffering here. Lord, make me more patient here. Lord, make me more steadfast. Lord, help me in light of the grace that I have received in view of the mercies of God. Help me to offer myself up. Lord, help me not to need justice today. Lord, help me not to mark this against my neighbor. Father, help in these ideas, Lord. May I be like you. How do you know? How can you even pray that if you don't stay around who Jesus is? Godliness comes from the fountain of remembrance. What has he done for you? Because if you're in Christ, you're washed. You're his and you're accepted. I'll close with this one thought. My wife met her on a hot date this week. The two cousins. We shared a bully for lunch. And this is how I know I have a, a, a good woman. She sat down with me at lunch. You know, you can sort of, sort of the plop in the seat, harumph. She harumphs in the seat and she says, hey, have you ever read the Heidelberg Confession? And, and I'll tell you, I, I got there to lunch early and I'm just sitting in the mess of this sermon going, what Jesus has done, I'm just, godliness is connected to the cross and I'm, Lord, it doesn't even feel practical. I know it's true, but... How can, I, how can I say something that I'm not living as well as I ought to? And I'm sitting in the frustration of all this, and she hops in the seat. She says, Heidelberg Confession, and because I'm a pastor, you, you have to lay on these things and be like, yeah, sure. Heidelberg, I read them all. Whatever. You know, but you're Googling under the table. And she says, she just says to me, hey, I, I, want, I want to read this to you. I want, now, a confession or a catechism is the old church's way of giving like a code of conduct for its soldiers. Helping distill the faith in a way that they could understand and hold on to and not lose their identity in the hardness of life, especially when many of them didn't read. So how can we ask questions and create answers in a memorizable way for an oral, non-literate culture that they can hold on to the faith in daily life, okay? So it's their code of conduct. And this is the first question. She says, I just want you to hear the first question. Now, I'm going to read you the question and the answer. Hear it beneath the notion of washed, given, accepted. Question one of the Heidelberg Confession. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm devoted to him. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. 
He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's a good answer. In this life, someone will accuse you. The accuser will come and will challenge. You're not clean. Or will tempt you to say, are you really devoted? Or will say, how could you imagine you're acceptable to him? And in times like that, remembrance is your path to godliness. And that's what we're here to do today. For those of us in Christ, we're about to remember we are about to formally say to the Lord, because of you, I am washed, I'm yours, and I'm acceptable. Let's pray, Lord. Help us to give our lives over to you. How can we receive such a blessed gift and walk on, Lord? Help us daily, mindfully, Lord, to come before you, thoughtfully of what you've done, moved by your great work for us, Lord. And to sit, just to sit in what that means for us. Lord, it's our prayer that the great fruits of the Holy Spirit that come by us abiding in Jesus, that they come through this faithful remembrance. Lord, we will not be a people that moves on from the cross to better things, but rather stays by Jesus as the only thing. We pray this would be true all the days of our life, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.